Gagan and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go. Release your underwriters to underwrite with Advantage Go's underwriting platform. Today's guest is back on the show in a role he's only recently accepted, that of chairman of the London Market Group, the LMG. Sean McGovern is probably the market's best qualified incumbent for this job. And in this podcast, I found Sean completely on top of his brief pushing the UK political establishment hard for changes to the UK regulatory regime to make it more accountable and conscious of the market's global competitive position, banging the drum to attract talent and develop market-wide initiatives that benefit all participants, big and small, and helping to create consensus around and drive adoption of the London market's ongoing technological reform processes. We talked about everything. There were no taboos, not even Brexit. In my dealings with him over the years, Sean has always been incredibly direct and often surprisingly candid, and this encounter is no different. This episode will get you up to speed on what's topping the LMG's agenda and what Sean and the rest of the team are doing on the London market and its clients' behalf to make sure that what everyone needs to happen, happens. I also think it'll make any London market practitioners listening feel particularly lucky to be so well represented. Well, see what you think. Enjoy the podcast. Sean, Welcome to the Voice of Insurance. Great to be here again with you, Mark. Yes, I suppose the last two times that you've been on the show, you had your AXA XL hat on. This time, you're in a different capacity as the new chairman of the London Market Group. So what's your first impressions? You've been in the post for what, just 100 days? We often talk about the sort of first 100 days. What's it been like? So firstly, it's a great privilege to have been asked to do the job. I've been around the market for 25 years and from various perspectives. So it's nice to be able to take the role on and try and give something back to support the market overall. And I think it's a great credit to all of my predecessors, but also the LMG boards that have existed through that time that I think the LMG now is really seen as the credible voice for the whole of the London markets, positioned itself very well, promoting an agenda that supports the market overall, and in particular with government and with regulators. So I think I've taken the role on at a really interesting time. You know, if you look at the agenda of things that we're focused on, it's a very busy agenda of things. And some of them are very live, which I'm sure we'll come on and talk about when it comes to things like regulatory reform. But the London market group is seen to be the group that is leading the London market's response to the changes that we're seeing in the business environment. Key priority is making sure that we preserve the business environment for London to make sure we can be successful relative to other jurisdictions. We're focused on playing our part in the modernization effort that is ongoing and has been ongoing for many decades in London. And also then importantly, the the work that Matthew kicked off on the talent agenda, where clearly we've got a lot of work to do to ensure that we can attract the right future talent into an industry which we all are in and all love and are all passionate about. So we've got a lot on. I think the LMG is successful because of the passion and the commitment that people have to putting their shoulder behind the wheel of making sure London's successful outside the individual interests of their own firms. And I think that what I've been struck by is that level of enthusiasm to make London a real success. And that's what the LMG thrives on. Yes, we all compete with each other every day, but we need to collaborate to make London a success. And that's really where the London market comes together is that collaboration around things that are important to London's future. You've spent a lot of your career in doing these kinds of roles at different organisations, at Lloyd's, at Excel Catlin, probably before AXA Excel. So you come in with a lot of experience of this kind of representative and a lobbying type role. So given that experience, are you going to bring anything different to the table 
or is it very much about continuity carrying on with what's already there? The LMG exists to drive the agenda of the market. I think we've set out a very, as I mentioned, there's a very busy agenda of things. Top of the list is the lobbying for the reform that we've been arguing for for a long time. And obviously, I was chairing the Government Affairs Working Group of the LMG that was really driving that. So I had a lot of experience in my past, but also with the LMG of finding what it is that we were looking for. And that's a live debate. It's active in Parliament. There's some challenges there that we need to overcome. So I hope that my experience will prove useful as we get into the final stages, but it's not about me. I think what we've seen and what I've been really pleased about is we've seen engagement from CEOs across the market who have put their shoulder to the wheel, as I said, around getting in front of parliamentarians. And also Caroline, as the CEO, is doing a tremendous job in wearing out the shoe leather around Westminster to make sure that we're getting in front of the right policymakers and the right politicians to make sure our message is heard. So I can only hope that I can reinforce the great work that's already been going on. So a role like this is not really a leadership role where you're supposed to come up with a vision and drag everyone else along with you. It's much more bottom up. You're executing what is the common desire of the London market as distilled. Yeah. And, you know, at the end of the day, the LMG is no different in that respect to traditional trade associations that are there to represent the interests of the members. So it's for our collective group to define what's important. And then it's for myself, Caroline and other people who are active in the LMG to really put some definition around that, be clear on what we're trying to deliver and then get on with actually delivering it. And what's the mood now as, as some of this legislation is actually going through the UK Parliament? It seems that we've had speeches from the PRA and FCA and Bank of England saying very much that everything is going to change, that the way their culture is going to change. They've said lots of things. Are you pretty confident that we're going to get everything that we expected? Certainly that secondary competition provision is going to be there, that that regulation should be minded in a secondary form to look at the competitiveness of, of the London market. And that, that is definitely going to be properly followed through, do you feel? I hate to be complacent, particularly when you're in the world of politics and things can change. Yes. Uh, but all the signs are looking as if there is acceptance that that needs to be part of the package. And that is the culmination of a very long campaign the LMG has been running around getting proper balance into the regulatory framework. And so, you know, we're not sort of resting on our laurels with a secondary objective. There's lots of other things we need to see as part of a package of measures that's really going to drive balance into the culture and the way in which the regulators operate. I would say we've been very positively received by politicians of all shades around the importance of the financial services industry and the need for a balanced system of regulation. Equally, we've been heartened by what we've seen coming out of the PRA and the FCA more recently. And certainly our engagement with them has been very positive, particularly with the PRA who are very positively disposed to helping work with the industry to see how we can get past some of the issues that we've raised. And we've been very direct with the PRA around some of the challenges that we've had, for example, with the ILS regime and getting traction with that. And they've been very receptive and we've had various industry roundtables to see how those things can be addressed. So I think we're in a different phase of the dialogue. I guess the one caution we have is that you know we don't want this reform taking too long. So We'll get the bill through Parliament. Hopefully that will put the stake in the ground about a different approach. But what we need then from the PRA and the FCA is a sort of clear path to moving quickly on some of the changes that I think they recognise now need to be made. And we want to be a continuing partner with them on that journey. But we kind of need to move at some pace here. You know, we can't be talking about things that are going out to consultation in a year or two's time. You know, I don't think we've got the time for that. We want to make sure that we can move quickly and create some momentum about that more balanced system of regulation. 
We're having a minor banking wobble. I would hesitate to call it a crisis. It's just seemed to be a couple of quite badly run banks have, have been taken over. And we've just had the UBS Credit Suisse announcement. But again, it doesn't seem to be much of a solvency problem. It seems to be a more market wobble around that bank. That's why I would hesitate to call this a banking crisis. But sometimes the wind changes quite quickly in these things. So do you feel that the wind is still set fair in your sales, whilst the man in the street might describe some of what you're asking for as deregulation? I think we'd say it isn't deregulation. Do you feel that the wind is still going to be on your side? This momentum is going to continue in your direction rather than re-regulation and telling you to not ask for things? I would hope that we will see our path to still getting what we need for the reasons that you say, Mark, which we're not asking for deregulation. We're asking for balanced regulation. We need strong regulation. It's part of creating investor confidence. So no one's looking for deregulation here. But we know that question is already being asked. So we're expecting Jeremy Hunt is going to get questioned about it when he's before and select committee in the next week or so. So the question is being asked. Is it now the right time to move forward with regulatory reform? And when those questions are being asked in a political forum, it can become unpredictable. But we won't let it deflect from our ask because our ask is not for deregulation. And I think it's fair to say that the financial instability is, I think you've described, that we're seeing at the moment is pretty uniquely driven by macroeconomic forces and the balancing act that central banks have got to move from a sustained period of low interest rates to higher interest rates and how they're sort of managing the balance between managing inflation and managing the continuing supply of credit into the economy. And that's a very difficult balance to strike as we're seeing from the various statements that are coming out of central banks. And I suppose, is it actually almost another feather in the insurance industry's cap to say, well, don't forget the last financial crisis, we didn't cause you too much problems, as long as you don't mention certain actors who were perhaps doing things that weren't necessarily insurance related. And again, we can say, well, look, we've handled the markdown in our bond portfolios pretty well because we expect this to happen. So again, is it a feather in our cap that we're not causing any headaches for regulators or politicians at the moment? It could be. Although you don't have to go that far back when insurers were creating some challenges for well, hopefully, politicians. Well, I, I was thinking that was, over, that was 30 years ago now. Oh, I was so talking that... more recently, you know, <laughs> the, the sort of industry response to some of the COVID business interruption claims was a source of frustration for politicians and regulators. So I think we have to be careful. The last time around, we did find it difficult to define ourselves distinctly from the banks. We thought it was easy, but in the minds of politicians, it was difficult. We're not banks. We're not banks. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily work, does it? No, and we did get swept along in a whole range of regulatory reform, despite our protestations that were designed for addressing systemically important banks. We're in a different world now, but I think we can't be complacent. We need to continue to make the case for change, and I would hope that will prevail, but it's unpredictable given how dynamic things are from week to week at the moment. Sorry to interrupt in mid-flow, but this is just a reminder that you could be advertising right here, right now and getting your message directly into the ear of key decision makers in the insurance industry. And you'll be doing it while they're absolutely in listening mode. The Voice of Insurance has just run through 300,000 downloads. If each of those had had a 60-second ad in them, that would make 83 hours of talking to the industry for a fraction of the cost of alternative media. The podcast is the medium of the future, and so is audio advertising. Contact me on mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com and I'll do everything I can to get you started. I suppose, yes, you can say we're not a bank, but then, of course, what they were looking at was systemically important financial institutions. I remember the acronym yes. of SIFI back in the day, which is suppose, over 10 years ago now. Yeah. You mentioned Jeremy Hunt, who's the UK Chancellor, the finance minister, for anybody who's not okay with the way that we describe politicians in the UK. He just had a budget. 
In that budget, there's an OECD director to have a minimum level of global taxation or within with the membership of the OECD. And it was something the insurance industry, I understood, wanted to make sure that the UK didn't over-enthusiastically adopt this measure, that say that it wasn't against the measure, but it wants to make sure it adopts it in lockstep at the same time as everyone else, rather than doing it too soon and therefore being at a temporary disadvantage while everyone else was delaying, perhaps. But he'd reiterated that commitment. So is that a disappointment or is that something you think you can work on? It is a disappointment. There really is no first mover advantage here (laughs) because we weren't necessarily opposed to the idea, but it was more around the timing of its implementation for the reasons that you've rightly stated. So everyone has to do it at the same time. Yeah. At the end of the day, what is the LMG trying to achieve? The LMG is trying to ensure that the environment in which we operate in London is conducive to business and doesn't create unnecessary and competitive barriers to capital and business flowing into London. And clearly, Being a first mover on something like the OECD changes will create an unlevel playing field relative to the speed at which is implemented by other countries. So I I don't think the industry is going to give up. It was announced. I think there is a question mark around how that is embedded in the legislation. And what we're trying now to do is to maintain some level of flexibility in the legislation to see how things develop. So the fight is not lost, but clearly there's a firm intent on the part of the government to move quickly on this and try and lead the way which does have business consequences. Well, I suppose we just hope that they're using it as a car they can then negotiate away or something or do something. Because we never know what they're thinking. We never know. We never know. But we will keep pushing our agenda on that point like the rest of the industry. And that's a great example of the LMG working very closely with the ABI and trying to be a single voice from the industry on topics that are important. And that's the Association of British Insurers, which is, um, I suppose, a much more broad general insurance and life insurance representative body for the whole of the UK insurance industry. Certainly some of the complaints we've had from the industry from the last couple of years has been the FCA particularly hasn't been doing some of the things it's supposed to do within the timeframes that it hasn't been blocking and tackling as well and as efficiently that it should do. Again, do you think you've seen any progress on that? We've certainly had protestations from the FCA. This is just turning around things like approvals. You have to you know, get a new officer to be FCA approved or a new board member or, even, or licenses, that kind of thing, that things weren't necessarily happening within the timeframes that are probably set out in their own legislation. And there have been delays and things have been quite slow. Do you think you can see some positive momentum on that? We've certainly had uh, that they've said that they're working on it and that they've hired a lot more staff and other things. So you're seeing positive benefits that starting to improve? I think it's early days, but I would say hopefully the signs are good that improvement is on its way. I mean, look, we recognise you know, the FCA has been through a, a difficult period. They've had a lot of challenges with retention of staff. I think government departments just found lockdown harder than anybody else. Yeah, I won't speculate as to the reasons, but they've clearly had big gaps in their resourcing and workforce, which they've been trying to address and going through a restructuring that inevitably has consequences on the service delivery. So I think they've been fairly open about that. So yeah, I mean, I think we have certainly been in very significant dialogue with the FCA around how they're addressing those issues, as has the rest of the financial services industry. I mean, for us, the principal issue with the FCA is the recognition that wholesale insurance is different from retail. And the challenge we have is the whole regulatory regime is designed through the lens of retail policyholders. Everyone accepts and everyone completely gets the reason why retail policyholders need to be protected. The reality is the bulk of the policyholders that we serve in London are all represented by very well-resourced and and strong advocates within the brokers who represent them. They play a very important role. Many of these clients have their own risk management teams. 
So they don't need the level of protection that a typical retail policyholder would need. Again, it goes back to balance. It's about how do we get to a system which recognises that, yes, there are areas that the FCA needs to pay attention to in the London market from a market conduct point of view, but they aren't the same as retail. If you talk to the brokers, that's the biggest challenge they have is getting that differentiation between their retail and their wholesale operations. It's very interesting because we've been talking about this ever since financial crisis when UK regulatory legislation was amended to split the previously singular regulator, the FSA, the Financial Services Authority, into a conduct regulator, which is the FCA and the prudential regulator, the PRA. It's odd that we've been having that conversation for about a decade now. So do you think there's any progress? Because you know, certainly on the investment side, there are definitions of sophisticated investor, et cetera, that only, only sophisticated investor, obviously, who can afford to lose certain amounts of money can get access to certain types of investment, whereas the widow and orphan who really needs to be protected, who've got a very small nest egg, who really relying on that money, who certainly can't afford to lose that money, are protected. But then they're prevented from going into high-risk, high-reward schemes perfectly understandably. Why do you think we can't get that change of mentality, that understanding, particularly when we're talking about really sophisticated global buyers and very sophisticated sellers in a sophisticated market? There has been a tendency to have one-size-fits-all approach, and that's what we've been arguing against, as you say, Mark, for a very long time. But then it's a question of where you draw the line. So if you look at, for example, the implementation of the new consumer duty in the UK, which is going to significantly extend the scope of the protections that rightly exist for consumers, actually that applies to quite a lot of small businesses as well, and medium-sized businesses. And I guess the question is, do they really need those protections? Now, the reality is we have to build compliance and the brokers have to build compliance systems that provide the protection the regulator is expecting, and that all comes at a cost. And those costs are inevitably passed on to policyholders. So I won't speculate as to the reasons why it's proven so challenging, but it's a discussion that we will continue to have. And I think the engagement with the FCA is growing as they emerge from a period of significant internal change. And I suppose change. that could be a first beneficiary of that competitiveness remit. It could say, well, this is affecting our competitiveness. It's all very well regulating this thing, but actually it's not going to be done here because we have to keep adding 3 4% cost and that's making us uncompetitive. And therefore... Would it force them to wake up on that? Having a competitiveness objective to drive balance is one thing. I think the other area that we have been focused on with Parliament is ensuring that there is the right level of accountability for the delivery of that competitiveness objective. So when I gave evidence in front of a, a Lord's Committee, you know, the question I said is, so the competitiveness objective is put into the legislation. What happens the day after? What are the regulators going to do differently that embeds that within the way they think about regulation, the way the culture of the organisation, the way they change their processes. And we need proper parliamentary and industry accountability for driving that change, because the risk is otherwise we won't see the change that we're all looking for. So if Parliament pass this, they have a clear statutory intent to introduce that as a new objective. And what we now need to see and what we're arguing for in some of the amendments we're trying to see come in through the legislation is actually embed some of that accountability and those metrics into the legislation so we don't lose the momentum that we're trying to build here. So that they're held accountable and that they don't get to mark their own homework and say they're doing really well when they're not. If you look at the system of accountability now, and nobody's suggesting for a moment that we should interfere with the independence of the regulators, because that's very important, but you yeah. can have independence and accountability. And at the moment, accountability is largely 
the CEO, the chair, the regulator going in front of the Treasury Select Committee being questioned, and that's about it. We want something that's more tangible, where things can be measured. So timings around approvals, et cetera, can be properly measured and they're properly scrutinized. And we can see change and we can call regulators to account when they're not meeting their own commitments to the industry and the greater public. Sort of KPIs, that kind of thing. In the same way that the governor of the Bank of England has to write a letter to the Chancellor of Exchequer of inflation's over 2%, which I'm sure they obviously have to do every yeah. month these days, but explain what they're doing to bring it back down to within that 0-2% range. The, the boss of the FCA to be held accountable to, well, sorry, you're missing some of these KPIs, these key performance indicators, and what are you doing about it? You now need to have some remediation plan to show that kind of thing. And that's not unreasonable expectation. Again, it's not interfering with independence. It's just saying if we're trying to create a system of regulation that's responsive, we should have a way of measuring that. You're always held to account to all your metrics. So perhaps, yes, it needs to go both ways. This might seem like a slightly random question because it's sort of such a dead topic in many ways. But with Brexit, with the UK leaving the European Union, when we were first talking about that, obviously before the withdrawal agreement had been agreed, Everything was up in the air. And I suppose the industry, if you'd asked what the insurance industry wanted, we'd like to have some form of equivalence or perhaps enhanced equivalence. Obviously, equivalence, you could have quite a short notice period to be sold. You're not equivalent anymore. And actually, you've only got a year to clear off. Perhaps our aspirations just after Brexit would have been to have something that was a much longer notice period to be formally notified that we diverged from EU equivalence too far and that we were going to lose it. Now, we're a bit of an entente cordial with the European Union. It's a senior level. This has been over the Northern Ireland Protocol Agreement and the Windsor Protocol. It just got me thinking, if you were offered equivalence now, would that still be something you want? Because of course, you've already had to deal with Brexit. Everyone's got their EU regulated entity, which you've set up at reasonable expense and have invested a huge amount of time in, and they're all working pretty well as far as we can see. So if you were offered it now, would you still want it? Yes, I think we would, because one wants the opportunity to write business through whatever channel is available. And as you say, I think businesses have successfully, albeit at cost, adapted to Brexit and made decisions that, frankly, will be quite hard to reverse, given the investment that's been made. So certainly, if it was on the table, I think we'd want to take it, because it would represent an improvement in the overall trading relationship with Europe, which is an important market for London. We need to be realistic. Yes, we've had a sort of thawing of the relations, but it feels like we're still at quite an early stage and we're quite a long way off getting into detailed negotiations about what the future regulatory relationship between the EU and the UK might be. So I think we need to be realistic that it's almost certainly not anywhere close to the agenda at the moment, let alone even bubbling to the top. You've already created that new channel. Theoretically, it should be a better channel because it's closer culturally, uh, linguistically, in every way closer to the customer in the EU, particularly, you know, Brussels is absolutely in the heart of Europe. Lots of people are there, obviously. People have picked their location for that hub. It is really, really interesting. But I, I mean, I do think that notwithstanding everything you've just said, I do think we need to remember that London can act as a highly complementary market to local markets. So whether those local markets are businesses like ours that have got local establishment businesses that can serve the business locally, or difficult to place risks that need to come into a market like London in order to gain the capacity and the expertise that they need, because you can't have the level of expertise that's in London in every market around the world. So I think for me, it's about understanding that London's role is there to be complementary to the local domestic market. And I do think that's a message that we need to get into the political debate in Europe a bit more strongly, is that 
there is a case for London's support for the European market in a similar way to the very strong case that we have for the way in which London supports the biggest and deepest insurance market in the world, which is the US. Yep. There is certain business that comes to London from the US for the reasons that I've said, which it needs the expertise, it needs the capacity. That same similar principle applies for the European market. And so it's in the interests of Europe overall from a policy and economic point of view to open that channel as efficiently as possible because we can't do everything locally that we can do in London. Yes, that pitch for London to be the EU's excess and surplus yeah. lines market is still there and it's valid and it should be beneficial economically to EU member states. We wouldn't be competing with the local domestic carriers. We would be there to complement. Absolutely. That's a very good point. So well, we just keep going. Watch with interest. We keep yes. going, keep going, <laughs> yes. Well, actually, it's quite interesting. You spend a lot of time in the corridors of power, certainly in UK politics, and who knows, it's so unpredictable what will happen. But we have an expectation at the moment, as things stand at the moment, that the party that's currently in opposition has a better chance, certainly, of winning the next election and forming the next government than it had for a very long time. I've seen more business-orientated headlines from that party, from the opposition party. It seems to us it's realising that it needs to be seen as a government in waiting rather than just an opposition, and that certainly seems to be making overtures to the City of London. Have you felt any of those and that sort of warmth and those overtures from the UK opposition? I'm not going to speculate as to who might or might not form the next government. We have no next, idea. Uh, no, the the politics the government. is very complicated. But, you know, as the election approaches, we will continue doing what we're already doing, which is engaging with all parties, firstly, to make sure that there is an understanding about the importance of the London market, which one can never be complacent that people understand just how important the London market is to the economy. So if you think about the size of the London market, we've got about 120 plus billion of GWP. We employ nearly 50,000 people and we contribute nearly 40 billion to UK GDP, which is 25% of the city's total contribution to GDP. So we are phenomenally important to the economy, very important to the city. So firstly, it's about making sure that Labour, as much as all the other parties, understand what it is we do, why it's important to the economy, and why they should be positively disposed to seeing us as an opportunity for continued growth. We have been engaging with Labour. We've had very positive engagement. So we hosted a roundtable with Johnny Reynolds, who's the Shadow Business Secretary, with London market CEOs. He was very engaged, very interested in understanding what the London market does and how it contributes. We've spoken with Labour's shadow city minister. We've been in front of Labour peers as part of the regulatory reform agenda. And Caroline has been attending party conferences, including the Labour Party conference. There has been that active engagement. I think you're right. There is a change in tone from Labour. I think they understand the importance of reaching out to the business community and seeing the business community as a force for good rather than the opposite. And we'll continue to do that. So certainly from our point of view, we will be out in front of anyone who will listen to make sure the message is received about how important London is to the economy and to keeping the wheels of commerce turning. We can make a good case that we are the good side of capitalism. We fix things when they go wrong and we don't make ridiculously outsized profits. We'll very, very rarely ever get the chance to do that. So that's a message that can land quite well, couldn't it? Yeah, I think it's a relatively easy argument to make. We need to continue to make it, but I think it's easier for politicians to understand the role of insurance and the role we play in the economy and keeping the wheels turning. As I say, things can't happen without insurance. And I think that is beginning to be understood. And certainly one of the benefits that we've seen as part of the regulatory reform going through the Commons and the House of Lords is 
there is a reason to go and speak to a vast number of people who are very curious to know what we've got to say, very curious about who we are, what we've got to say. We've hosted various events as part of that where we've had great representation from London market CEOs across brokers and carriers. And it's been a great opportunity for them to hear directly from people who are running businesses as to what's important to them for those businesses to be successful. So reasonably optimistic. Sounds pretty good that there's been decent level of engagement. And so, yes, potentially positive. I just don't think there's any let up. I think you have to keep telling the story and you have to keep telling it continuously. Oh, yes, certainly. No one's going to do your own marketing for you. You have to do it yourself. You mentioned about the talent. Certainly the last time we had LMG on the show, it was predecessor Matthew Moore with Caroline Wagstaff, the CEO. And it was really all about this talent program that they'd launched. How's it going? I think it's going really well. Again, from my point of view, it's an important part of the forward-looking agenda for the LMG. It's, it's something everybody is aligned around. If you look at the way in which the industry has got behind one of the LMG initiatives, so we've been doing outreach to schools since February. We've had outreach into 35 schools. We've got 15 more to go. We've launched our Futures Academy, which is basically a two-week internship for students from those schools to come in and spend some time in the London market and get some insight into how insurance could be an interesting career path for them. We've had 42 firms in the London market subscribe to that. So in the summer, we'll be taking over 110 students into the London market as part of a structured program the LNG has put together and they will spend time in, in various firms around the market. That's a great shop window for us to show what careers you can get in the London market. And you know, I'm really excited about that. We at XRXL are taking 10 of those. And I think it's a great way in which the LMG has brought the market together because certainly for the smaller firms in the market, they can't do those kinds of things on their own. You know, it's very difficult for a relatively small firm to start doing outreach to schools on their own and start constructing yeah. an intern program. I think collectively we can gain some scale together. I think we'll have more of an impact. And you know, the hope is that of those 110 students who come and spend a couple of weeks in the market, they'll go away, one, thinking insurance is interesting, which we know it is, but generally isn't the perception, certainly amongst 16, 17-year-olds. Yep. And they'll think about insurance when they're thinking about what they might want to do next. And that is all about trying to address the talent challenge the market has got. I think the other thing that Caroline has really led is looking at how do we tell a story about the London market careers in a language that younger people will understand. If you look on the LMG website, there's a whole bunch of collateral there, which is really younger people in the London market talking about what they do and why they do it and why they find it interesting. And those are useful for us to be able to access people and talk in a language that they will understand. And then even reaching out and using TikTok did Caroline go on TikTok? So there is one TikTok film with a social media influencer. Apparently it's had 85,000 views and it sent web traffic to 500 visitors a day for a week, I'm told. So I think that's a bit of an experiment. But interestingly, even within our own business, we're thinking, well, how do we use channels like TikTok? Because with the best will in the world, a lot of the talent we want to target are not using LinkedIn. Yep. We need to be a bit more imaginative and, and getting access to channels that young people yeah, use. I suppose every you go day. on LinkedIn once you've got a job, not before. Yeah. And actually, from my own perspective, I've got university aged children, and the London Insurance Life website is actually really good. It's got loads going on there. So if I send that to my children who've got friends who are graduating, or whatever, 
I always say, oh, by the way, you should check out this. If they're looking for a job, there's loads of interesting things on there. So just a personal commendation. There are a lot of really good jobs and internships and grad trainee, non-graduate trainee, non-graduate apprenticeships, school leaver apprenticeships. There's tons of stuff on there. So actually, yeah, that, that London Insurance Life, I'll put a link in the notes. It's really good because I think if I went there three years ago, there wasn't so much stuff on there. That, but now it's really active. There's loads very, yeah, of things it's very, on there. Well, thanks for the plug. But yeah, there are <laughs> 50 firms that are advertising roles yes. uh, on there. So it's becoming a, a bit of a go-to site. And, and look, you and I have been around this industry a long time. We know it's a phenomenally interesting environment in which to work with great people and really interesting career opportunities. We just haven't been very good at telling that it's story. It's quite good. It, it does it from more from the person's perspective. It says There's a section that says, what are you interested in? 20 things you might be interested in. And well, here's a job in insurance that is related to the thing you're actually interested in. Yeah. It starts from the right way around. Yeah. So if you go into insurance, you can you can do things that will actually fulfill some of your own personal interests, you know, which are really, really interesting. And again, going back to a comment you made earlier about the role of insurance and it's an easier sell to policymakers. I think it should be, if we get it right, it should be an easier sell to future talent as well. Because we know that certainly as we are interviewing and onboarding people into our business, the question around what it is that the social role and the purpose of the business plays is phenomenally important to people coming in. My children, your children, they pay a lot more attention to, I want to work for a business that's trying to do good. And I think there we have a phenomenal story to tell comparison with a lot of other professions. And again, it's about getting better at telling that story. One other part of the LMG remit, but I think at a very high level, you've probably delegated this more to the data council. This is a year of Big delivery on a lot of projects within the London market, digitization, modernization program. Are you pretty confident things are going pretty well? So I think the Data Council's doing a phenomenal job. Sheila Cameron's done a, a great job in pulling together stakeholders who need to agree on the future path. And I think we've achieved some of the milestones we set out to achieve. So, you know, getting the core data record agreed and now moving forward with the digital market reform contract. So I think we set out clear ambitions and I think we're well on the track to achieving those ambitions and achieving that consensus because LMG's role in this whole agenda is really one, to corral the market to agree the standards because there's only one body that can do that really and it's the LMG that can bring carriers, Lloyd's market players and brokers together to try to agree how it is we want to set market standards around particularly data. I think we're delivering on that and then it will be about driving adoption. Because again, the London market group can bring people together and gain consensus to drive adoption. The challenge, of course, is one, agreeing the data standards, driving adoption, but then you've got to have the technology infrastructure to support what we're doing. And and obviously that isn't within the remit of the LMG. But there, it does feel as if there is a concerted effort now and, and people are all pointing in the same direction, which hasn't always been the case with market modernization. And it does feel as if we're starting to put some important stakes in the ground to demonstrate progress. But let's not be under any illusions. There is still an awfully long way to go. Market reform has been much talked about. We've had many false dawns. We don't want any more false dawns. So I think it's incumbent on the market to get behind both what the LMG is doing in trying to build consensus and deliver standards, but then also what Lloyd's is trying to deliver in terms of the actual underlying process infrastructure that will support that improvement that we all know we need to make. It's a phenomenally difficult thing, as we know, 
you know, you've basically got to get all of the firms in the market. What are there? 350, 400 firms in the market. You've got to get them all going in roughly the same direction at roughly the same time. And that's not an easy thing to achieve. But it does feel as if we're making perhaps a bit more progress than has been the case in the past. Do you think the core standards and a bit of pump priming, for example, we look at electronic placing. Now we've really got an interesting ecosystem. We've got the in-house PPL, which is the pump priming effectively. And we've got those placing standards. And at the same time, having agreed those are standards, that seems to have flushed out reasonable investment from large and quite weighty third-party players that have broad shoulders who are competing in that marketplace now, which is, can only be good for everybody. It's going to drive up standards, have better products, easier to use systems, that kind of thing. So again, do you think that's the best model, agreeing those standards? If you agree the standards, and hopefully you can create a level playing field where some of these big third-party IT providers can do a lot of the job for us. It's critical because you have to have those vendors engaged and they have to have enough confidence that the market's going to move because they're going to need to make investments yes. in products they can then sell on to businesses in the London market. So that vendor engagement is absolutely critical. And that competition is important because it will keep the infrastructure vibrant. It will create more dynamism in how the market addresses this. And it will give opportunities for businesses to move at different speeds, which is not a bad thing. Excellent. So it's all pretty positive and it's that work on those core data standards, those kind of things that would you say that that's helped unlock some of this? Because certainly we do have that interest from vendors right now. We've had strong support from the market in terms of what the data council is doing. I think we need to recognise that change programmes in any organisation, particularly when you're trying to drive it across the whole market, will have bumps in the road. I think we need to recognise that actually this is something we've talked about for so long that we actually need to get on and now deliver it. I think there feels like there's a roadmap to doing that. There seems to be an alignment and commitment to it across the vendors, DXC, PPL, and the market needs to get behind it now and encourage it along and, and adopt as we go. Sean, I think I've asked all my questions. I don't know if you have anything else you'd like to say. No, I think we've covered a lot of ground. I mean, the LMG is, you know, the agenda is very, very full. I'm very excited by it. I think we are on the verge of hopefully achieving some real change that we'll look back on in five, 10 years time and hopefully see as being very positive for the future of the market. So it's an exciting time for London. I think there's a lot to do. We can't be complacent, but the signs are positive. And I think, as I said before, the LMG only works because people are passionate about the London market and that remains very strong. And, and if it remains that strong, then I think we'll have people fighting the London market's corner for the foreseeable future. Well, we've got you doing that as well. And we haven't even had time to talk about your day job. So good luck with everything, Sean. Thanks very much and come back on the show soon. Pleasure. Thanks, Mark. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost-effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced in association with Advantage Go. Release your underwriters to underwrite with Advantage Go's underwriting platform.
Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com. Thank you.